Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. With no fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So, we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. All right, welcome back to another episode of SRG Offscript. I am excited to have joining with me here today uh, two of my favorite people in the lending space, Dustin and Aaron. I was expecting to get Dustin because I've known Dustin forever. We talk about this stuff all the time anyway. And fortunately, he was kind enough to have his compatriot, uh, Aaron Racino from PPC Loan, join as well. And guys, I appreciate both of you doing this because all of us collectively in the MA world, now is probably the worst time to be trying to consume an hour of your time in December when, frankly, you are working to help close loans for your clients, but also our mutual clients. So we'll try to keep us on topic and get you guys back to it for our collective mutual benefit and for the clients. Kick us off here. I wanted to just give you guys a second, do a little bit of background intro. Um, I can speak on behalf of SRG and say we've had a chance for shoot, I don't know, me personally for many, many years, going back to, I think, like 2007, 2008, maybe, work with you, Dustin and PPC, on putting deals together and financing them. But you guys have been in the space for a long time. You were the first ones committed to doing advisor REA lending. But I'll let you give a little bit more detailed background on what you guys do, how you do it, who you do it for. I'll come to you first, Dustin, since you're the OG, and then you can go back to Aaron. Sounds good. And thanks for having us today, David. Yeah, I think, you know, looking back, it was actually even a little further, probably 2005, 2006, when we really started, you know, evaluating this industry as a potential niche we wanted to serve. But, you know, PPC as a company has been in existence since the late 90s. And we've always had a sole focus on working with cash flow based service sector businesses. That started with Dennis and expanded into various other niches, including veterinarians, funeral homes, insurance, um, but most importantly, investment advisors. And, you know, we really started to evaluate and establish a program around 2005, 2006, maybe 2006, seven, where we really started to gain some traction and brought the program to market late 07, early 08. Uh, timing, Great timing. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't perfect, but you know, I think it, it did add a lot of value to how we served the market long term because we had some we had firsthand experience that no other lenders have had to date that I can think of. You know, we had funded a handful of loans leading up to the financial crisis and were able to really, you know, do another layer of due diligence for the program during that time to make sure, hey, this was a feasible vertical to serve over the long term. And while we took a pause in 08, you know, it was 2013 when we came back to market. Um, and I always like to, to highlight when we did come back to market, the focus of the program was acquisition financing for RIAs, not independent advisors at broker dealers, IARs. It was RIA, the truest form of independence, or at least you know, the, the purest right. form. And we have since evolved. You know, and now today we serve independent advisors in all channels. So that could be RIAs, that could be independent broker dealer advisors, or the registered reps, IARs working on platforms. We're helping advisors transition from W2 to independent in some areas. Not so much of them transitioning out of wirehouses, but maybe they're in a W2 channel with one of their broker dealers and you know, they're allowed to shift into the independent side to get more equity out of their business. So the program's evolved since 2013, focuses on the independent space, and we really serve all of the capital needs of an investment advisor, which starts with M&A to our next-gen loans for buy-ins, buy-outs, internal equity purchases, ultimately internal succession plans, 
And then we offer working capital, lines of credit, and we can really do anything from 200,000 up. You know, we've historically said 200,000 to 20 million, but, you know, this year we've actually added the capability to do larger loans, you know, above that 20 million mark. So again, you know, hard to find too many scenarios that we can't be of assistance, but that kind of gives you a nice kind of clear picture of who PPC is and how we've gotten to where we are today. Awesome. Very cool. And Aaron, I know you are a bit newer to the scene, although that's relative because you've still been around for a while. We've gotten a chance to know each other and work on deals together. Uh, when did you join PPC? It's been a couple of years. Um, I joined PPC 2015. Was it 15? Okay, got it. Yeah. In, in terms of your role in the organization, I mean, Dustin's just kind of the czar now that sits at home, I think. You're actually involved in putting the deals together, right? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm the uh, I'm the guy that's uh, in the weeds on these deals. So I I oftentimes working directly with the buyer to you know evaluate the the transaction, looking at financials, you know, looking at feasibility of the deal from a financing perspective. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I do a lot of work. At, I guess at the ground floor, yep. seeing these deals and helping put them together. Yeah, that's why I was excited to have both of you on because obviously, Dustin, you've had a chance to move more into the you know strategy and the development side of things with PPC and being active in the market as an evangelist, which is awesome. And then, yeah, Aaron, with your hands on these deals. And I know there's, frankly, there's others even on your team. I and mean, how many, what's the team look like now at this point? How many people are dedicated to the advisor side of your guys' work? Uh, we have five underwriters. And then our closing okay. department, servicing team, and, and those others. But uh, as far as like loan officers and underwriters go, I think we've got uh, a team of five now, Dustin plus you. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, the, the unique thing about PPC is, well, we're not a bank. We're also, you know, we kind of operate like one so that the client isn't ever handed off to a bank. You know, we're working with them from that first phone call that Aaron takes or that I take all the way through the funding and post-closing and servicing and providing for new needs. But, you know, you can think about the a five, six person underwriting team, but you've also got another five to six person uh, loan ops team, a closing team. And, you know, the advisory industry has become, you know, obviously the most important niche that we serve today. So we really have kind of all hands on deck that where historically, you know, we've been a little more divide and conquer, but we're putting more resources to this space um, and looking to continue kind of growing because, you know, what we're seeing, I think, long term is that, you know, there's not going to be no shortage of capital needs in the next five to 10 years and, and potentially even longer. And would you maybe unpack that one in a little more detail for me, Dustin, on when you say you guys aren't an actual bank? I, I teed that question up for a couple of reasons. Number one, because we collectively know, and maybe some of you listening have a good idea about this, if not in our industry and others, there are traditional straight up loan brokers. They broker loans, they package them, present them to a variety of different lenders they might work with. But they're, I mean, and, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but anybody who says that's kind of meaning it in a derogatory way, like they're the middleman. And it, can work really well, I think, in the mortgage space where there's so many options or auto loans where there's so many options here, there aren't that many options. So for now, I haven't really seen a dramatic need for that loan broker role. You guys aren't the traditional loan broker, but you're also not necessarily lending off of your personal balance sheet, which puts you in this like weird hybrid middle ground that I've come to know and love. But I think unless people talk to you and understood the landscape, they might not fully get that. Is there an easy way to describe your guys's role in the ecosystem there is and you kind of describe the differentiator you know, the middleman or the traditional broker kind of manages that early part of the relationship you know and in this space specifically a lot of times they're responsible for getting you a proposal not an approval but getting you a proposal and then typically you'll be connected to one of the, the banks that that broker might be working with where they're going to manage or be in touch with the client on the underwriting, the closing. Maybe you work with the broker if you ever have a new need down the road, or maybe you work with the bank. But for PPC, you know, that evolution as a company, you know, did start with us kind of being more of the, the front end manager of the relationship, but has evolved to a point where we actually are the client's point of contact from the first phone call until the relationship or loan 
all of the loans are paid in full. So it's allowed us as a company to control the process, minimize some of the headaches that many people might experience in working directly with banks. Yeah. You know, for, for those uh, who are listening and have had the opportunity to work with directly with some banks, they realize that a lot of banks live within a certain box. And if it's outside of that box, they're not willing to consider you know, getting creative or doing something different, or maybe they're making the process a little more painful than it needs to be. And, you know, PPC has the ability to kind of minimize those types of interactions and focus on, you know, a smooth and efficient process and really serving as an outsourced cash flow lending department for our partner banks. And lastly, you know, having multiple banks is very beneficial. You know, it's allowed us to offer some new things to the market that not all banks want to offer. For instance, you know, the traditional loans that are, let's call it 500,000 to 5 million. Probably not hard to get a ton of people on board doing those types of loans to investment advisors when you see their track record, but you know, someone's in the market with a need for 5, 10, 15, 20 million, there's going to be a, a far fewer number of banks that are interested in, you know, doing those types of transactions. And we've been fortunate to bring on some new partners and really expand our offering to serve all areas of the market. But, you know, not handing off the client relationship to a bank, I think, has allowed us to really differentiate ourselves from your traditional brokerage model. Right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting bifurcation because it's it's a subtle difference, but I can tell you from the seat we sit in working with you guys on these deals, talking to the clients, and we have clients that work with, you know, some of the, there's not a lot of them, but some of the loan brokers in our space, and they do a fine job too, as well as direct lending resources. And the experience is just different. It, I won't say good or bad, because I'm not here to throw shade at anybody, because they all have a space in the market, I'm sure. But it has been nice with you guys in the sense that, it sounds simple and obvious, but you guys say what you're going to do, and then you go do it every single time. <laughs> so I don't know if that's by virtue of the size of the team, your guys' role in it, but whatever it is, don't change it because we love it. Our clients love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, you mentioned the larger loan size. Are you guys seeing increased need for that? I just I go back to where we were you know, in the mid-2000s. Like People were just happy that there was financing available, let alone worrying about, you know, loan sizes at 200,000 or 20 million. So are you seeing an increased need for that? Or has it always been there and you guys just didn't have access to the capital as easily as you do now? You're probably looking at a little bit of both. There's been an increase yeah. in need, but the market's become more organized. You know, when you think about, as you mentioned, 2000, not having any capital available, there's probably far few SRGs that existed You know, in 2000. Um, yeah, there was, you know, not the aggregators. There were likely not, you know, attorneys who specialized and accountants who specialized in working with investment advisors. But, you know, now that the market has become a little more organized, there's more resources, hmm. valuations are growing, there's private equity interest. You know, I definitely would say that, you know, the, the need has grown, but it's still somewhat, in my opinion, muted because, when you reach the point of needing you know, even 10 million in debt, let's call it 15, 20 million and more, there's a far, there's a much less number, a far fewer number of firms that right. say, let's turn to debt. You know, at that point, a lot of them do kind of shift to, okay, what are my other options? You know, not many. Yeah, fair. 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 million dollar advisors or firms are going to get a ton of private equity interest. You know, there's definitely getting interest, but I think there's fewer that would be willing to come in as a minority partner on something of that size. But, you know, those become new options for larger firms. So I think the debt option is definitely viable. You know, we, we look for a fixed rate of return. We don't look for equity in the business. But again, a lot of firms knowing that you know, the ongoing need, if you're reaching 10, 15, 20 million in debt could grow two, three, four times that amount. There's yeah. almost no lenders, or I, I don't know of any single lender that will do loans of that size. You have to find right. banks that'll participate. So the need has grown in the market. 
but still somewhat, you know, limited compared to, you know, the M&A market that's probably sub 10 million in debt. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, and you, you or Aaron, I can't remember who it was, but let's go to you, Aaron, because again, you got your hands on these deals actively Monday through Friday on the next gen loans. That's something where I'd love for you to maybe just unpack a little more detail around what that program looks like, if there's anything nuanced or special to qualify, because we're seeing an uptick in succession. And I suspect it's back to the same answer we just unpacked together, Dustin, on the size of the loans. I think the succession planning need has kind of always been there, but we we are seeing more people starting to engage in it. They're engaging in it mm-hmm. earlier. We're also working hard to help promote it and get people thinking about it. So it seems like there's more of a need for it than ever before. And you guys have a really, frankly, and I mean this in the best way possible, you have a really, from what we see, simple loan solution for the next gen people buying in. But what does that program look like? I never really get a chance to like ask you specifically in layman terms for an audience. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad to hear that we're seeing it more prevalently yeah. because I think you know both you and us have been preaching it for years, right? Trying to get the advisor to plan for their own retirement. The, the yep. hypocrisy there is not <laughs> does not fall on deaf ears. Um, you know, do, do as I say, not as I do, can yeah. sometimes be a theme there. So that's something that I think we've all been preaching for a long time because, you know, the internal succession plans do take time. That's one of the most valuable resources that you have in an internal succession deal. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the deal sizes on those tend to be a little bit smaller because you're biting off smaller chunks. You could be buying anywhere from five to 50% typically um, at any given time. So it's not going to be quite as large as an outright acquisition, yep. right? But yeah, we, we try to keep it relatively simple, structurally speaking. You know, for most RIAs that have one to five, you know, key employees or something that may need to take out a founder or two, you know, we, we have a lot of flexibility and, and options to structure a traditional debt option for the, the equity purchase if they, if the founder does want a liquidity event. Uh, so we have the ability to do 10 year terms, 10 year fixed rates, up to 100% financing for the G2 buyer. So it's, it's, we do our best to try to structure these deals in a way that make it affordable too, because to one of Dustin's points earlier, you know, valuations are, are still steadily climbing. So um, the affordability factor for the next gen is something that um, is discussed a lot. And I think we have a, you know, a good loan solution that helps the, the founder pass the ratings down to that next generation if that's the exit plan that they see. But as a conventional lender in the space, we, you know, for a long time, we were the only ones that were doing succession, like these types of succession loans, because the SBA right. program is not conducive for it. So it's sort of become, I don't want to say an inadvertent niche within a niche, but <laughs> it's become a, a huge focus of what we do just here at PBC. Well, it's interesting because I, it seems over the years that that has been one of the harder areas to secure financing for. And when I look at it in the spreadsheets, the before and after buy-ins, they seem so much less risky than an acquisition <laughs> where like I buy your business, Aaron, you introduce all your clients to me over the next six to 12 months, all of which did not know me the day before we closed, as opposed to that internal succession loan where the year after, it looks a lot like the year before. There's just It seems like there's no risk in those deals, but I'm sure on paper to a bank, there's probably still some level of risk loaning money sure. to a successor. Yeah, I, that's a terrific point, right? Because those types of deals are basically absent of one of the most uh, prevalent risks in an M&A deal, and that's transition of right. ownership, right? And especially in such a heavy rela- personal relationship business. So uh, the internal deals, I don't want to say are absent of it, but yeah. largely absent of transition risk because largely nothing changes operationally speaking. Yeah. Um, so you don't see attrition clauses. You don't see runoff from clients or people leaving because... Once the loan closes, more often than not, none of the clients actually even know that it happened. Right. Um, so that, I mean, that's a huge, a huge benefit. And I guess when you're looking at really the financial component to it, um, you know, you're looking at cash flow and, and loan to value, right? Those, all those numbers are going to look really good on paper because we're right. talking commercial loans here. So these loans are ultimately backed by the business, but you know, they're repaid by the individual. Yeah. Um, but when you're looking at loan to value and cash flow supported by the business as a whole, I don't want to say it's a no brainer, but they often are, are exceptionally strong from that perspective too. 
Yeah, one thing on the internal. Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to say one thing that's I think unique about next gen loans, and I'm I'm learning even as the industry or more resources come into market for capital, is we've had the ability to do, and we still do to this day, you know, buy-ins and internal equity purchases that eliminate the need for majority partners to guarantee, and you know, and as we've expanded our you know banking relationships, we've learned that that's not always the norm. You know, there's there's still plenty of lenders right. outside of the SBA that say, hey, you know, we'll do internal succession planning, but, you know, we need the majority owners as guarantors. Um, and we've actually, right. you know, our traditional product that we use for buy-ins and buy-outs, you could be a 0% owner buying 5% and you would be the only person required to personally guarantee the loan. And again, you might find with some other lenders that... They'll do the loan and everything looks the same with the exception of needing a guarantee from that majority owner. So I think, you know, that's been a differentiator in some cases, you know, outside of what's available in the market. And, you know, lastly, on the risk side, you know, when you think about a solo practitioner, this is a relationship based business, as Aaron mentioned. If something goes south with that individual, whether it's, you know, a problem in their ability to run the business, a character issue, which has historically over the last 25 years been the key reason we've had defaults in any industry is character based. But with the solo practitioners, not much of an exit plan. And they may not be willing to transition clients if they're defaulting on a loan and realizing much bigger issues with their own personal financial situation or other situations they're dealing with. But in a multi-partner firm, the exit option is much simpler. You know, if we have someone buying 5% equity and starting default, I'm likely three, four or five other advisors ready to step in line and buy that equity. We don't have to worry about transitioning the business to another advisor if there is a default in those types of loans. So, you know, that's another kind of key reason why these are looked upon so favorably. Yeah. Okay. Would you unpack that guarantor comment in in more detail? Because that's one where... I know having talked to some of the next gen folks buying in, when they hear that from other lending resources about the the company, the founders, the majority owners being a co-guarantor, I don't want to say it goes right over their head, but they just I think they see it as kind of a non-issue. And then it gets presented to the majority owner who's looking at that and saying, mm, not a chance. I'm not gonna be on my own loan to sell you equity. So can you talk more about that one? Because I feel like that's one that just, it doesn't get enough time and attention and it doesn't come up then until the 11th hour, which makes our work harder. Sure. I think the simple comparison is if you took a business with, let's call it three owners, and we made a loan to that business for an acquisition, you typically have those three owners as guarantors. Now we're not taking collateral liens on personal assets, real estate, anything of that sort. But you do have personal guarantees, and that's going to be pretty much standard with any lender you talk to. But when you think about a next-gen loan, the company doesn't have a need. And the example I just gave you, the company's doing an acquisition, the owner's guarantee, because they're all getting, they're all going to benefit, ideally, from this acquisition. But in an equity purchase and sale, you've got one individual selling shares, and, and you could have four or five partners and only two are involved in an equity purchase and sale. So obviously right. the other three don't want have a need for debt and really don't want to have to guarantee debt if they are majority owners. So the guarantee can be structured in a way that the buyer of the equity is the guarantor and the company serves as a basically co-borrower or guarantor back in the loan, but it eliminates the need for personal guarantees from all the non-participating partners or really any partners not buying equity. So the business does service collateral. So that's an important point because without it, it's an unsecured personal loan, which we do not offer. And no lender in the industry offers, or at least that specializes in lending to investment advisors, offers unsecured personal loans for equity purchases and buy-in. They need some collateral, uh, which is the business. And you know, the one thing to point out here is you know, while these businesses have a lot of value, to a bank, arguably they have zero value because there is no tangible assets. These are goodwill-based businesses. 
And, you know, a bank stepping in as an owner, taking an asset like this into receivership is only going to exacerbate uh, or cause bigger issues, most likely. You know, there's, there's no client relationships. The bank doesn't know how to run the business. So, again, we're always looking to find solutions if there is a problem with a loan. Fortunately, I can tell you we're approaching our 11th year of lending to this space, or we're in the middle of our 11th year, and we have yet to have a missed payment that I can recall. We've definitely had zero defaults, and I'm pretty sure no missed payments. Yeah, which is, I mean, pretty powerful considering the, not just duration, but things that occurred during the duration of that period. I mean, you're talking a pandemic, some major market corrections. (laughs) So just, it speaks to the resilience of this industry. So not that you guys need more competition. So we'll keep that one on sure. the, the DL. But <laughs> last question on the next gen loans. And this is just one I've never actually had a chance to ask you guys directly. Loan size. So I know you said you can get down to, let's say, 200000 It's probably not one like everybody jumps up and high fives when that loan request comes in. But you can still do it. What about the next gen loan? So let's say we've got four of us buying my examples, I'll keep it simple, $600,000 in aggregate equity, but there's four of us. And so that could put, you know, some of us maybe below that 200,000. Do you look out on an individual basis or if the four of us show up buying the $600,000 collective stake from the founder, is it more than 600,000? Like, would you deny one person who's buying only a hundred thousand because the loan's too small? Like, how do you guys handle those? It's the aggregate. So is it? Okay. And, you know, funny you asked that question because I can tell you we've actually, you know, with a multi-billion dollar firm, did one loan for how big was it, Aaron? I think it might have hit 200000 but it might have been only 150000 And it was kind of a test run to see, okay, do we want to leverage this resource in PPC for ongoing annual equity sales to our employees yeah. and staff? So you know, we're, we're flexible. We realize that... Okay. One loan isn't typically the last loan for our customers. 40 to 50% right. of our customers in the history of PPC have borrowed two or more times. I think it's actually just over 40%, and it might even be closer to 50% with advisory. But we know yeah. that's typically a start of a long-term relationship, and our goal is to serve as a long-term capital partner. Which is an important point to bring up, not the focus necessarily, you know, the line of questioning, but... We suggest that to folks when working on whether it's succession planning, I mean, certainly in succession planning, but even mergers and acquisitions is make sure whoever it is you borrow the money from, they're going to be there for your next deal. If there is even a 51% chance, you might go do something else or sell equity because, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Aaron, you guys can do 10-year loans. A lot can happen in 10 years, as in like you might sell more equity, you might have another acquisition opportunity. And we've run into this before where folks get a smoking good deal from a local community bank. They've got a lot of money with good, you know, good longstanding banking relationship and they get a great loan one time. And then they go back for the next loan and the bank, you know, says, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. That's our appetite is, you know, satiated on this topic, you know, basically uncollateralized loans. And so then they go and they call you guys and say, Hey, okay, well, I have a need for another loan. And well, you guys don't want to be in second position. The first bank's not even going to do parapasu at that point. And then they have to roll the old one into the new loan. And if they had a better rate, that could be painful. So, you know, as, you, as my public service announcement, whoever you borrow the money from for your current deal, any chance you might need more money, just have that conversation. You know, most of the industry lenders, even non-industry lenders, I found they'll, they'll shoot straight if you know to ask the question. But you got to ask the question. And unfortunately, people find out later and they're having to roll loans in that were like, you know, five and a half, six percent fixed because they have the next bigger deal that's even more important than the last one. But they're remiss to give up like the last three or four years of payments at that amazing interest rate compared to where we are today. So, right. Yeah, especially in today's interest rate environment, right? it gets a little bit painful. Yeah, uh, but that's that's something we do see. It's not uncommon. A local banks willing to do a one-off kind of small loan at some incredible deals because of the relationship. But right. you go back to them, you're like, "Hey, you need a million, two, three, four, five million dollars, whatever it is," and they look at you like you have three eyes, you know? Right. Um, and you know, at that point, you have to really look at long-term 
relationships and people that are committed to the industry, right? I mean, I think our commitment coming through 08, um, yeah. doing loans before that and after that, I think is kind of telling. So, I mean, our, our banking partners are committed to the space and they aren't doing one or two or three or four or five deals a year, right? They're, yeah. they're doing anywhere from probably 10, 15 to 100. So <laughs> um, there's there's just a different level of commitment that we expect we and our partner banks have to the, to the wealth management space. So right. the relationship is something that we are very, very big on. Well, the interest rate is an interesting one. And, and I'll come back to ask you guys the annoying straight question you know is coming at some point. We're going to talk about financing, but I won't ask it yet. So you can be teed up <laughs> for how you want to respond to the interest rate question. But when we see abnormally low, or another way of saying great interest rates for the client, I, it seems like it is always accompanied by something else. Like you're squeezing a balloon here. If it, today's environment, you get a bank, somebody giving you 7%, 7.5% fixed for 10, read the fine print. I feel like it, there's almost always some kind of weird loan covenant that then offsets their risk, or it's not even a 10-year amortization. It's one of those annoying seven and 10 loan structures where it's a 10-year amortization, but it's got to be paid off by year seven. And then they will blow smoke and tell you, oh, well, you could just refinance it at year seven. Yeah, maybe, but maybe yeah. not. That's not what the loan says. <laughs> so what do you guys yeah. think? I mean, you guys run into this stuff too. These are your peers, competitors. Are you seeing something similar when you're competing against these really low competitive rates? Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I tell people just because you know I'm, I'm working with a lot of these folks on the front end and just kind of coaching them through it is, is really do what you can to understand everything about what the financing structure, the offer looks like. Because I always like to tie it back to something that most people are familiar with is you know, mortgage comes to mind, right? Most people have a house, they shop a mortgage. Right. I don't know about you guys, but me, I was looking at rate. Everything else is generally pretty much the same as long as you're shopping for you know a 30 year or whatever you want. All the covenants, conditions, terms are all going to be pretty much the same. The rate's going to be really the only material variance. And a commercial business loan of this sort, I would almost say it's the exact opposite, right? The rates will probably be close enough, but the terms, covenants, conditions, requirements, those can vary significantly. And I've seen people take higher interest rates or more expensive loans, costs, whatever, right? To have a loan that has more flexibility, <laughs> less covenants and, and those types of things. So, you know, as, as ironic as it might be, you may just have to get a couple proposals from whoever you're interested in potentially borrowing from to really get it all in fine print because the devil is 100% in the detail. So if you, you know, get a good teaser rate, there's good chance something else is coming. <laughs> right. And that's just... It, it seems like folks, because I've had had folks that have gone and, and done what you described here, and they go do the typical mortgage thing. We go shop rate, and they come back and they say, oh, actually, yeah, I know, SRG, you introduced us to you know PPC and let's say you know Live Oak if we were looking at an SBA solution because they, you know, another player in the space, good resources for the right deal. And they'll come back and say, actually, those two struck out. I got this other amazing deal from either one of the loan brokers in the industry or a local bank. I'm like... That's too good to be true. Every time something's too good to be true, you find out later. The most recent one we had, uh, it was one that actually happened, it wasn't even a year ago, but they end up finding out. I don't even know how they found out. Probably read their loan documents finally, but they end up finding out that they're smoking a good deal on the raid. And it was, I mean, it was a good deal. I, mean, I was hard pressed to tell them not to, except for look at the details. Sure enough, there was an AUM covenant in there that if the AUM dropped by more than, I think it was like 20%, the loan was callable. Well, you know, where given where interest rates seem to be heading, if these rates keep going up and I'm a bank that loaned you money, you know, a full percentage point or two below where we are today, give me an excuse. If I'm not an industry lender, give me an excuse to call that loan, get my money back. I already got the origination fee. I've already got some interest on it. And I get to get my money back and redeploy it at a higher rate. I mean, I think these folks don't think the banks will do that. But these are these are banks. So anyway, I just the loan covenants can be kind of tricky, and I don't think most people we're just not used to it in you know, like retail, residential, like mortgage financing. Like that's not a thing because it's so highly regulated. Commercial financing is it's similar in some respects, but it's different. It's different, yeah. I mean, because to your point, Avery, there could be any number of things, right? Ongoing financial covenants like AUM, revenue, 
debt service ratios, um, yeah. you know, collateral, right? Some some banks love taking a second lien on your home. We we do not do that. And I recommend trying to avoid that if at all possible, because then you're really mixing business and personal assets. And we've <laughs> seen some some horror stories from people that try to sell their home and need to use the proceeds to pay down their business loan, yeah. uh, which is not what they're planning to do with that money. So, I mean, there could be just any number of things. We could talk for 30 minutes about <clears throat> you know, all those different little variances and nuances, because, yeah, I mean, to your point, the devil, the devil's in the details. And if, if, it was me and I had the option of one loan at a quarter percent higher interest rate with no callable you know, or less financial covenants or right. whatever versus something that was cheaper, but I was just felt like I was exposed to more risk. I'm taking the higher rate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, cause generally again, when you look at the economics of these deals that we're actually funding, you're not, you're not, living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, right? So yeah. there's there's the ability to avoid, uh, absorb a slightly higher interest rate or more cost just because of the economics of these deals typically. So it's almost like a little bit of an insurance policy to protect yourself from yeah. you know, whatever other headaches could be could be lingering in the loan docs. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And Dustin, you can probably speak to this. I was talking to one of our mutual clients uh, down in Eugene, Oregon, where we're from, um, Tony, I won't go into last names because it doesn't even need to be, but you know who I'm talking about probably. He worked with you guys a couple of years ago. They have another need coming up for succession planning, but I chatted with him, I want to say it was either earlier this week or late last week, and he had brought up one of the things that I also don't feel like gets talked about very much, and that is after the loan has been put in place, the ongoing relationship that the borrower has with the bank, and I mean, I can speak to stuff that I've done on the commercial financing side, it's really annoying every single quarter when they keep hitting you up for financials and then asking you questions about those financials. Like, But that's pretty normal, it seems like, in the commercial lending space. But when I was talking to the client down there in Eugene for the deal that you guys had done for them, it's probably a couple of years now, he was mentioning that... He, I think he gets hit up like once a year you know, for the financials. And so anyway, he was very excited and had no interest in talking to anybody else. And I think it just goes back to like Aaron's point on just know who you're getting into bed with. And sure, if you want to go save a quarter point, you you can possibly do that. But there's just so much other stuff to deal with. I mean, is that pretty typical, like Tony's experience on the relationship Post sale, a they're still working with you guys, and b you're not hitting them up like monthly for their financials and then interrogating them because I've heard that before. That is correct. I mean, we're we're annual requirements. SBA's quarterly. You know, and conventional lenders okay. can typically run from quarterly to annually. You know, the other thing you won't hear from us very often if there's just to to ask random questions. You know, we can take those financials. And that's going to be with any bank, you know, at minimum, you're going to be required to submit annual financials because it's a regulatory requirement right. for the banks to properly monitor the loans on their books. So, you know, I always use that as a, as an easy explanation to a client, especially an advisor. Hey, you guys more than anyone understand regulation. Um, the banks are dealing with it too. So, it might be a little bit of a nuance, but annual isn't that bad. You, you, you've got the tax return, right? Hitting the send button to fire it over to the bank or having your accountant send it over is a pretty simple process for most people. And I would say we're calling and asking questions in, you know, less than 1% of cases. You know, we, the reason that a bank might be reaching out is, hey, revenues are down. You know, if it's, markets have been stable or increasing and your revenues are down or profits are down. If there's signs of a potential <laughs> problem, you might get some calls, but generally speaking, um, sure. you know, our communications, uh, I would call it more friendly than typically just checking in, seeing how people are doing. You know, we have open dialogue a lot with our clients in a, a positive way. You know, we've created relationships, not just a loan for these clients. And, you know, we're interacting throughout the year occasionally as needed. And, um, again, it's it's not bugging them to ask about a simple, you know, or, or ask about the basics of the business, which we easily understand and is typically readily apparent when we get those financials or updated financials. But, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's another aspect of just a package deal. 
And if you're in the market looking for financing, it doesn't hurt to get two or three offers to compare rates, fees, costs, prepayment penalties, covenants, financial requirements. I mean, there's a long list of things that, you know, are important to evaluate. And ultimately, you know, the experience and who you enjoy working with, because I think, you know, the market's reached a point where, you know, there's two, three, four, five lenders out there that really know what they're doing. And there's not a huge variation in the terms, you know, there's plenty of, you know, similarities and there are differences, but, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of times I think the, you know, experience and ongoing relationship and and that's established early on is important to advisors. You know, they're, they understand the importance of establishing a good relationship, establishing fit with their clients because they're going to be working with them for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, ideally. And, you know, if we've got firms or advisors that have ongoing capital needs, and that could be acquisitions for the next five to 10 years before they even consider an internal succession. So our ability to support them throughout that 5, 10, 15, 20-year relationship is how we want to position ourselves and where we are positioned today. So, you know, when you're out in the market looking for capital, just, you know, make sure you're asking the right questions and and looking at various options. Would you hit those again, Dustin? You're probably not going to necessarily remember off the cuff, but you mentioned like the prepayment penalties, the loan covenants. Because again, I I know most of us are guilty of this. You're going to get a loan for a couple million bucks. You're worried about the rate. Like that's what you're putting into your amortization schedule. You're looking at how it affects your payments. But beyond the rate, what were some of those other things to make sure they look at, whether they're talking to you or anybody else? Yeah, I mean, I think your probably key criteria is your interest rate your origination fee, your closing costs, prepayment penalty, covenants, which are typically AUM minimums, revenue minimums, and debt service coverage minimums. And lastly, collateral. You know, Is it strictly the business, your advisory business, or is it extending beyond that? And then are they looking yeah. to place liens? So I'd, I'd probably put those at the top of the list. You know, Aaron, maybe I left one or two out, but I think you know those are some of the key differentiators and you know, maybe one dad would be, you know, is the bank willing to finance 100% or do they want some cash or seller financing? You know, maybe your deal structure doesn't allow for that, or at least that's not what you've negotiated. So right. last thing you want to do is negotiate a deal, sign a letter of intent, only to find out that <laughs> all the lenders are on the same page and don't want to finance the deal structure you put in place. But, you know, outside of that, I think, again, those are kind of the high points, The some of the the key pieces of the puzzle that are going to be important in evaluating who's the right partner long-term. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll add to that to a term like loan term, right? If we're doing a 10 year fully amortizing term or a seven year term with a 10 year am or something like that, right? That, that matters because that exposes you to risk at that time because you'll have a lump sum balance at the end of your loan term that you have to figure out what to do with. Um, And then I think, reputation and experience dude yeah. right there's a lot of work that's <laughs> that we're going to do together so hopefully you know it, it should be an enjoyable experience for for the borrower too and yeah just making sure again it's a long term relationship and a lot of money and so it's it's not even just you know during the loan approval and underwriting process that we're working together it's the whole term of the loan so you know you want to work with people that you enjoy and you know that do business the right way just because of the, the duration of it so those are the couple things I'd probably add to that list too Yeah, no, helpful. So what, from your guys' seat, since we're talking about rate and term and the covenants and trying to, frankly, create a good experience for the client, what makes a deal bankable versus not bankable for PPC? Are there any, like, obvious deal killers? I mean, I know there's, like, bankruptcy is probably one of them, but there's probably others. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll jump on this one. Go ahead, Eric. (laughs) Yeah, please. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, I think the... The, you know, and I think this has become more prevalent. Uh, well, I don't know if it's more prevalent, but I think the biggest thing is, you know, one size. You know, understand that if you're a firm or an independent advisor that's doing fifty, a hundred, two hundred thousand in production, you're probably going to have a hard time borrowing, you know, two, three, four million for a large business purchase. Sure. You know, we, we see the ones that, Hey, I've been in the industry 10 years, I'm 20 million in assets and I'm ready to go buy a hundred million. 
those are hard deals. I mean, I, I would say that's one of the things that kind of jumps at me is, you know, and that's across the board. It's like, hey, I get a call from a, an advisor and I've talked to two or three lenders and they've got minimal minimum production <laughs> levels. And I wouldn't say we have minimum production levels, but again, you know, you, we want, it, it's helpful to see that, you know, there's more established equity in a buyer's practice, which comes from being larger and have, being more profitable. We want to see that the buyer has experience in managing something of larger size. So I think, you know, that's one that jumps up, I think, to the top of my mind. When you ask that question, Aaron may have a, another good example of that, but that's, you know, I think size comes into play a lot these days. And the market does a pretty good job of weeding out smaller buyers. I will say that, you know, the, these, these aren't as common, but I think it's a good talking point and good for the industry to understand. But, you know, in most cases, a seller that's, let's call it a hundred million, 200 million, they're likely going to go with a buyer of equal or greater size who they feel has the capacity to serve their clients. Um, and has experience yeah. working with larger businesses and more clients. So, you know, it, it, it does do a good job of weeding out those potential lower quality buyers. Yeah. And I'll say, I guess, on the other side of the coin, things that, that make it challenging, if not impossible, to secure financing. Um, going to be things, like you mentioned, bankruptcy. Recent bankruptcy is a big problem. Um, uh, maybe... Uh, robust criminal history is problematic. <laughs> um, you know, credit, something we still look at, personal credit. Um, okay. Things like a recurring or pending issues on your U4 or uh, lawsuits and things like that. So, I mean, just from, I think, the personal side, just from the real basic qualifications, those are a few things that are problematic. And then kind of what Dustin mentioned too, if you're significantly smaller than your acquisition target, not that it's a non-starter, but they are a lot more difficult, um, you know, structurally speaking, just depending on the circumstances. But, you know, if buyers are larger, well-established firm, professionally managed, have good financials, right? That's always a, a talking point as well. Most people... You go to ask for financials, and they they ask what a P and L is, or they don't they don't have that. So you know all those things help us do our job and help you qualify. And probably you know to to Dustin's point as well, you look a little bit more professional in the the seller's eyes too, and that's going to be more attractive to sell into somebody who looks like they're well put together. They have a good robust team, uh, they have processes and capacity, and it's more professionally managed. They feel like they're kind of selling up. Right. And right. their clients are, are likely getting a better experience selling into a firm that's probably a larger and more professional type organization. Is there anything beyond what you've shared that would put something into like as a borrower, put them in the slam dunk category that you guys, when you see it come through, you're like, yes, we love this one. We can't wait to get it done. <laughs> Any oh, obvious factors? <laughs> I love that question. Good personal financials is one big one too, yeah. right? Because we're underwriting the individuals as well as the business. So if somebody has 5000 in cash and 100000 in credit card debt and back taxes, not a terrific look. Yeah. If they have good, strong liquidity, good retirement savings, live within their means. That's awesome. And then the other two things I would say on the business side are going to be loan to value and cash flow. So if we have a, a firm doing two million in revenue that's buying five hundred thousand in revenue, debt free, we know our loan to value in the collective picture is going to be extremely low. Slam dunk, shouldn't be an issue. Okay. Um, similarly, we don't expect cash flow to be much of an issue either because the firm as a whole post acquisition is not going to be super leveraged, right? So because we're not levering up too much debt payment should be relatively low in proportion to profitability of the combined or organization. So um, on this side, low, low loan to value and strong cash flow will put you into a, uh, a category of your own. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that. But it's funny you mentioned the, oh yeah, go yeah, ahead, Dustin, please. Say, I'm going to pull the curtain a little, pull the curtain back a little bit on the loan to value that Aaron referenced. Cause I think this is kind of key. You mm -hmm. know, we established our program we wanted to simplify how we lent. And it was typically a multiple of recurring revenue. Started out at one times, has yep. grown. And we, as we've added new partner banks, you know, we've seen differences in how banks like to look at loan to value. But you're going to hear a few different things. You might hear two times recurring revenue. You might hear three to four times EBITDA. Or you might hear a percentage of evaluation. They all yep. kind of work out to the same. You know, I think 
our the program that we've had and and our you know key partner banks have always lent off the two times recurring revenue, which is in most cases given us a little more flexibility, but not in all. But I'd probably say a ninety percent plus because again, when a buyer comes to the table, we're giving consideration to what they represent, and that works across all these methods. But you know, again, if you're thinking three to four times revenue. I'm sorry, two times revenue, three to four times EBITDA, 70% of evaluation. The basic thing to take away from that is the equity in what the buyer brings to the table, the buyer's advisory business, that established equity contributes to what a lender can do. And that in kind of is another layer on the size of the buyer, right? If you're 100,000, 200,000, you don't have a lot of established equity. You don't have a lot of established cash flow. So things are naturally going to be more leveraged, tighter cash flows, harder to get approved. Whereas if I've got a $300 million firm with two or three partners that wants to buy a million dollar book of business, let's call it a million in fees for three million or three and a half million, we consider financing 100% of that and we do it often. But if you're telling me that same seller with a million in revenue selling for three to three and a half million is selling to a buyer with 20, 30, 40, 50 million in assets, might be able to get financing, it's not going to be 100%. So again, you know, it kind of just a, a little deeper dive into the cash flow strength and the leverage or, you know, loan to value that Aaron referenced. Got it. And so when you say the, like your example, the two times the revenue, again, that's two times the combined revenue, correct? correct? Yeah, yeah. So, because okay. that's the math I feel like a lot of people overlook when we hear that. Like, oh, well, two times I'm buying the book, does a million in revenue. We do three or four million in revenue. So they'll do two times the million. That's two million, obviously. Well, shoot, we're paying three, but that's not the math. The math is the combined. Correct. And I think, you know, and that's when you think about if someone says, okay, we're limited to 70% of evaluation. Well, if the valuation is three times, that's 70% is about right. two times. If you're thinking, I've got a firm that's, Three million in revenue and doing a million. We'll use that as examples. EBITDA, thirty-three percent. You know, three to four times that's only three or four million. It's far less than one, far less than two times revenue or seventy percent of likely the actual value, which is much higher. So sometimes, yeah. and we actually none of our partner banks really look at EBITDA multiples, and there's a reason for it. The EBITDA multiple is going to work itself out, right? If at a certain point, it just doesn't cash flow. So as long as it cash flows and is within a certain level of, you know, multiple of revenues or percentage of valuations, you know, you're going to be in good order. And basically, if you're a buyer of equal or greater size, there's never a lendable limit discussion. And that's yeah. probably the case okay. with 90% of the people we talk to. It's like, we don't have to tell them, well, we're, we're approaching a limit and we won't be able to finance the amount you need for these reasons. In most cases, it's, oh, you're of this size. Great. You're acquiring this. Perfect. Or you're an inside buyer doing an equity purchase. 100% financing's available. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So last question for the two of you, we'll bring this thing to a close. As you look at 2023, which we are precariously close to closing the chapter on and looking forward to, and frankly, we've collectively already started talking about and planning for 2024, what do you guys see on the horizon? I mean, as far as the rate environment, are you planning to lay a bunch of people off because you don't anticipate any loans being done? Are you ramping up you know, hiring? What, what do you guys think is in store for us? Aaron, you want to start that? And I'll, I'll take the first step. Close yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try to look into my crystal ball a Please. little bit. I, I personal opinion, I'm expecting 2024 to be a relatively active year. What we have seen, what history has told us so far, is that volatility or the shakeups in the market tend to increase activity on the other side, right? Because the advisors are aging and they kind of get to the point where they're like, I don't want to have to go through this again, right? With turbulent markets, pandemics, whatever it may be, right? Whatever the world throws at us. So uh, what we've what we seen time and time again is that through different challenges as a business owner, as an advisor, you almost see more sellers come out the other end. So I, I'm expecting to see 
pretty active 2024. You know, interest rates at an all-time high, well, not all-time high, but in, in recent history, um, have, I would say, not as much of an impact on deal making as people have would have expected. So if we do see rates start to come down, which it seems like we may have plateaued at this point, you know, that that may spark a little bit more interest in in the MA space and the affordability factors. But I think we'll still see strong MA. I think we're going to see a lot of succession planning because that does seem to just be picking up steam relatively um, consistently across the board. So yeah, I think that's I'm expecting strong 2024. So I'll add on to that. I would say, you know, 2023 was an interesting year. You know, there's bank failures, rising interest rates. I mean, a lot of just, it's just different than prior years, even than the pandemic. You know, the pandemic was such a kind of short-lived impact on the markets. It kind of came and went, and it didn't feel like it had a much impact on business. And as I look back over the last several years, you know, one thing it felt like was, you know, 22, kind of late 21 into early 22 was probably, I call it a little bit of a peak. And I wouldn't say things have come down, but I think 2023 was a good year. You know, what we found is it was an efficient year from a lending standpoint. We saw some growth over last year, but also saw less buyers or people interested in being buyers, reaching out to us, having conversations, because with rising interest rates, with competition, with various capital, I think those interested buyers who've never done a deal want to do a deal, but aren't putting together an active strategy. We take a lot of phone calls from them in 2020, 21, 22. And I felt like 23 was a year where there was less of that. So the calls and the individuals or firms that came to us you know, had a strategy, had a need, or we're definitely getting, you know, likely to get something done in the next six to 12 months. So I think in 24, you might have a, a return to, you know, more buyers looking to try to get maybe their first deal done as they potentially see rates starting to come down a little bit. You know, if markets continue at the pace they're on, um, or at least reaching what I think we may have hit an all-time high here in the last day or two. Uh, but if, if things hold steady or continue to grow, you know, I think it's just going to feed to more activity. So I wouldn't say 2023 was a down year by any means, but it kind of felt like a plateau, you know, in 22 and 23 as we ironed out some changes in a rising interest rate environment. But moving forward, I could, I could definitely see activity becoming a little more robust than we've seen in probably the last two years. Yeah. When interesting observations and generally congruent with what we expect to see. That's, you know, we're still not seeing that silver tsunami that we all expect given the aging advisor population. But as this topic gets talked about more, as advisors get more access to capital, you know, thanks to folks like you guys at PPC, I, I, I suspect we're going to see more and more activity, not just from advisors aging out, but I think there's still kind of a backlog industry wide of folks who it's not a failure to plan or failure of awareness that they should be planning. Again, these folks are I mean, you all as listeners, you are planners by trade and by nature. We we know you generally want to eat your own cooking and that you're good at you know, saving and planning for your own retirement. I suspect on the succession side, the utter lack of succession planning as a percentage that we see or don't see, frankly, is it's largely attributable to just lack of liquidity available in the market, which has gotten a hell of a lot better here in the last couple of years, lack of awareness from buyers on ways to put these deals together and get more creative. Well, we've seen that changing a lot here lately. So I appreciate you guys keeping us. I mean, you're always good about keeping us at SRG updated on this stuff, but keeping us and our listeners up to date on where financing is today, because as mundane as the subject might seem on the surface, it has probably been one of the more impactful things I have seen on this industry in an indirect way, but the freeing up of capital is helping with consolidation. It's helping get the next gen advisors so that they're ready to take these businesses over. I mean, it's, it, it's impactful. So thank you for the hard work you guys do. I know you got a busy last two, three weeks here of December, so I'll let you get back to it. But this is one of those topics that frankly, I, I want to have you guys on every six to 12 months because 
it, it just keeps changing and, you know, it gets better, it gets worse. Interest rates move around. You've got banks failing. I mean, it's all sorts of interesting stuff. And these deals and the multiples we're seeing in today's market are, they're, they're almost predicated on 10 year financing at this point, which isn't where we were, you know, five and 10 years ago. So, I'm glad you guys are here to say that you've been committed to the space for you know the decade plus that you've been here already. So anyway, thank you both for carving out time for us and our listeners. Happy holidays, everyone. That's a wrap. Thanks. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.